1: Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at BeatTheStigma.org.
2: Hello, everyone. it's here? And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be.
0: This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much.
2: Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do.
0: Go to patreon.com slash Fangirl to learn more. Just Zeus turning into a bird to do the worst shit.
2: I'm Jen McMenemy.
0: And I'm Jenny Williamson.
2: And this is Ancient History Fangirl, the darkest timeline edition. We're taking a slight departure from our Gender Rebel series to tell you the story of Zeus and Ganymede. This is the story about the time Zeus kidnapped a teenage boy named Ganymede and brought him to Olympus to be his cupbearer. Quote unquote.
0: Diving right into it.
2: Here is your warning for this entire episode this story is going to include discussion of child abduction, sexual abuse, and Zeus taking bird form to once again be the worst.
0: We're not going into, like, graphic detail about anything, but it is talking about that.
2: It is, and in all seriousness, this is going to be a dark episode, and it might not be one to listen to, particularly with small children around. Although why you'd listen to this podcast with small kids around is beyond us.
0: So, if this is such a dark story, why are we telling it? Good question. Because the story of Zeus and Ganymede is essential to the Gender Rebels arc, although it's not a story about gender rebels at all. Zeus and Ganymede are not gender rebels according to the ancient Greek binary. They were actually the foundation of the gender binary of ancient Greece and Rome. This is the story that explains where the practice of pederasty came from and how it became, a part of the binary. So here we go. Ganymede was the son of Tros, T-R-O-S, Tros, king of Dardania, who would eventually found Troy but had not yet. All of the ancient sources make it a point to tell us that Ganymede was beautiful. He had golden hair, beautiful olive skin, and he was, I guess, between the ages of 13 to 15. But for the most part, we've seen 15 as his age. He was lean and muscled with really nice blonde hair. I've seen it as like long blonde curls. That's what he looked like. And this is all to say that he was a 15-year-old who looked like a 15-year-old. He was not a 20-year-old playing a 15-year-old on a TV show. And Zeus saw this literal child and was like, I need a piece of that, which is extremely gross. Fuck him. Ew.
2: So you can see Ganymede in artwork depicted sometimes as a humble shepherd wearing a Phrygian cap and playing with a hoop. It's like a giant ancient world hula hoop. And although he's definitely a prince, you see him with this sort of like humble costume. There are some versions of the story where he comes from a humble origin and is magically revealed to be a prince or a highborn mortal. And you can see this a lot in Greek mythology. You see it with Paris, Prince of Troy, Atalanta the Huntress, etc. So this pastoral moment where Ganymede is out being a shepherd in some of the myths makes sense. It's about the big reveal of this otherworldly beautiful boy being royal and therefore maybe from a divine
0: heritage.
2: Although in this version of the story we're going with, this isn't the case, but I have seen this in other places.
0: I think in the version we're going with, he is a prince, but he's not... Of divine heritage, originally.
2: Absolutely not, yeah. So in our version of the story, Ganymede is just a prince, son of King Tros of Dardania. And it's in this version, probably, that he's depicted as being out with his chaperones hunting. Again, he wears his trademark phrygian cap, his blonde hair sticking out, and he's accompanied by hunting dogs and a group of guardians or tutors.
0: So yeah, there are various versions of Ganymede's early life, most of which are pretty vague, which is why we're not going into too much detail. But in all versions of the story, Ganymede was out on the slopes of Mount Ida shepherding or hunting. Take your pick. Which is where many mythological years later, Paris, that Paris, would spend his youth as a shepherd. I believe the myth of Paris dates to around the same time as the myth of Zeus and Ganymede because both originally, I believe the oldest versions come from the Iliad,
2: written versions. Yeah, I don't know about the artwork.
0: Yeah, I don't know about the artwork either, but um in terms of uh the mythological timeline, Paris existed later than Ganymede, right? Theoretically?
2: Yeah, cuz the city of Troy like doesn't exist yet and Dardania is where Aeneas is from and the horses that King Tros has given, which we're going to talk about in a minute, are the like horses that Aeneas has for his chariot or the descendants of the horses of Aeneas's chariot. So we're talking many generations down the line, at least two or three.
0: Anyway, so Ganymede is currently in the mythology existing prior to Paris. He's living his best life, hanging out on the slopes of Mount Ida, hunting with his hunting dogs and his entourage when all of a sudden he catches the eye of serial predator Zeus. So Zeus has seen this young boy, and he's like, you know what? He is the most beautiful mortal I have ever seen. So Zeus turns into an eagle and swoops down and picks Ganymede up. And many of the illustrations we've seen show Ganymede struggling, either running away from Zeus or struggling in the eagle's talons. And we're going to actually include a quote here because it broke Jen's heart while she was reading it, so she wanted to include it, and then she gave me this paragraph to read like I'm her, but I'm not. You're welcome.
2: I hope this hits you right in the feels the way it did to me. So the oldest written depictions of this story come from around the 8th century BC, and it's found in the Iliad. But this description that I'm going to read you comes from a much later Roman source. It's from Virgil's Aeneid, because why not? which is from the first century BC. And as we've said before, the Aeneid is filled with Augustan propaganda. But I wanted to include it because it literally did make me stop and think about what it would have looked like to watch the abduction of Ganymede and be powerless to stop it. Quote, woven into the fabric of a robe was an image of Ganymede hunting on leafy Ida with his javelin, hunting down swift stags. You can almost see him panting, the nimble boy. He was pictured too being snatched up aloft from Ida in the claws of Zeus's fast-flying eagle. His aged guardians are raising their impotent hands to heaven. His dogs are furiously barking up at the sky above them.
0: Here you have Ganymede, a child, just out doing his thing, and then suddenly a giant fucking eagle swoops down and picks him up and flies off with him. Just Zeus turning into a bird to do the worst shit. And everyone on the ground is looking up at this boy being carried off, his guardians and his hunting dogs. His dogs, probably who Ganymede raised since they were puppies, are howling up at the skies, begging someone to do something, to bring back their friend. And yeah, I got a little
2: weepy over this because I can totally see my little dog just barking up at the skies and desperate to get someone's attention, to get them to stop this outrage that's occurring. I just, I had to include it because I felt like this was one of the few instances of the abduction of Ganymede that really sort of, like, made me think, like, what would it have looked like if I was on the ground watching and just being completely powerless? Because you have all these men and a young boy, maybe more boys in the entourage, too, that Ganymede's friends with, we don't know. They're all out doing the manliest thing, i.e. hunting, and they're out in the wild with their dogs, and what happens? The child that is supposed to be saved, he's supposed to be guarded and protected, he's carried away. And all of the men are left impotent as Zeus just carries off Prince Ganymede.
0: The men with Ganymede are often depicted as chaperones or tutors, people who would have been charged with ensuring Ganymede's safety while he was out hunting. Probably also with managing the whole hunt, making sure Ganymede caught his prey, and teaching him how to kill it, I'm assuming. These people would have been invested in Ganymede. They were his teachers, and it was their job to keep him safe. All of the men here, including Prince Ganymede or aristocratic Ganymede, depending on the version of the story, are helpless to stop what is happening. They can't prevent Zeus from abducting Ganymede. While this abduction is something super typical of Zeus and his sex offender playbook— The abduction of a young boy is actually different than his usual M.O. Zeus doesn't tend to abduct young men, usually. Usually he targets women. Young men, by the virtue of their gender being male and their status, in this case royalty, tend to be safe from Zeus's sexual aggression, usually. But this isn't the case with Ganymede. And the abduction of Ganymede really fucks shit up for the men of Dardania. Like, their sense of safety is shattered.
2: Even their sense of, like identity and gender and like their role in society like zeus zeus is pulling a total caligula here he can do anything to anybody and while intellectually they know the gods can do anything to anybody there is this feeling that like well there are rules there should be safety right
0: i mean obviously these are shitty rules that say that it's okay to target women but not men
2: (laughs) well obviously that goes i mean that should go without saying but yes
0: it should, but we are in the in the darkest timeline. We have to say it.
2: We're definitely going to say it.
0: <laughs> yeah, like I think, you know, you're operating under certain assumptions that you are safe from the gods doing this horrible thing to you and you are clearly not because the gods decide to break the rule in this instance. But also like what you said about this shattering their sense of gender and the impotence of it, I think is really interesting because it goes back to gender as a construct. Like if specifically for men, If your gender is not something innate to you, but something you do, then you have these crises of gender anytime the world doesn't go the way you think it should according to your gender. Like, being a man means protecting the people you're charged to protect, and you can't do that. What does that say about your gender? You're not really a man. Like, men have these crises of masculinity in the ancient world in the modern world. I mean, this is not limited to the ancient world at all, in a way that if gender wasn't a construct, they wouldn't have that feeling, I'm assuming. Like, it's just one more clue that gender is an utterly constructed thing.
2: I mean, yeah. And that's, that's kind of why I wanted to include this quote as well. I love that translation of that word. I didn't look at the original Latin, but I love that translation of impotent. And I love the idea of all of these men just being like, Oh, well, we couldn't do anything. Like, we just were literally like, whoops. <laughs> and to be fair, they can't do anything. Like, even if they had power, they, they have no power against the king of the gods.
0: Yeah.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.
2: Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast.
0: And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything
1: yet.
2: But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts.
1: I'm Helena Bonham-Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II.
0: They had no
1: idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian
2: Mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend.
1: Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. So,
0: another factor here is... um. How this affected Ganymede's dad, uh, King Tros. King Tros was not okay with what happened to his son. I mean, obviously he wouldn't be. He was absolutely distraught when he was told that a giant eagle had carried off his child. His son should have been safe from the sexual predilections of the king of the gods, right? His son was a prince. He should have been above such horrors, but he was not.
2: And he should have been above those horrors because he's a prince, not a princess. So he says absolutely no problem with... Doing horrible things to princesses. Let me just remind everyone. There are many, many princesses who Zeus decides to have his way with. And queens. But again, this is a prince.
0: It just tells you again that women's, women's gender did certainly made them a target, but also women's rank did not protect them in a lot of instances. So, and I think that's probably true in a wider sense in the ancient world as well.
2: So Ganymede's father was heartbroken. The Homeric Hymn to Aphrodite, which was written between the 7th and 4th centuries BC, tells of the sorrow of Ganymede's dad, quote, Verily, wise Zeus carried off golden-haired Ganymede, because of his beauty, to be amongst the deathless ones, and pour drinks for the gods in the house of Zeus, a wonder to see honored by all the immortals as he draws the red nectar from the golden bowl. But grief that could not be soothed filled the heart of Tros, for he knew not whither the heaven-sent whirlwind had caught up his dear son, so that he mourned him always, unceasingly, until Zeus pitied him and gave him high-stepping courses, such as carry the immortals as recompense for his son. These he gave him as a gift, and at the command of Zeus, Hermes told King Tros, how his son would be deathless and unaging, even as the gods. So when Tros heard these tidings from Zeus, he no longer kept mourning, but rejoiced in his heart and rode joyfully with his storm-footed horses. So let's break down what this passage is telling us. After Zeus kidnapped Ganymede, he made him his cupbearer, eternally pouring ambrosia, which is what the gods ate, at the gods' table. Immortal, but not quite a god but Tros, Ganymede's dad, is understandably mourning the loss of his son. He's mourning the loss of his son so much that Zeus is like, maybe I should do something? Maybe I should give this guy like a dowry or a bride price or recompense? Or I don't know, maybe just tell him that his son is totally living his best immortal life. Because he is. He is totally living it up here on Olympus. He's here up in Olympus, pouring one or two or an attorney's worth of drinks out for all the immortals forever young and fuckable because why not i mean he definitely didn't say that bit i bet hermes edited out and was like pinching his nose like fuck me and zeus continued he's always on display at the mercy of his kidnapper you know Wait, wait 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 maybe maybe don't tell him those things or i don't know hermes you just read the room and see how it's going
0: don't worry, your son is extremely fuckable. And I bet he's like, Hermes is like, don't tell him that.
2: Man, I love Laura Olympus's depiction of Hermes because I just feel like, yeah, that's the only way you could get through this job, really, is just to be that Hermes.
0: What a shitty job. So Zeus sends his son Hermes to Trost to try to smooth everything over. You know, get this mortal king to stop making so much noise and be happy that Ganymede is deathless now and serving drinks to the gods and... Having sex with Zeus every night? Ew.
2: Although, hold up, Xenophon said they never had sex.
0: We're getting there. Anyway, if the dad still misses him, and why should he miss him? We told him he's doing fine, God. Here are some epic horses. These are the horses that the gods use. Look at the shiny, shiny, shiny horses. They'll fix everything. Cool?
2: That would fix everything for you, Jenny.
0: Uh, well, I mean...
2: No, it wouldn't. <laughs>
0: are they the, um, what are they, the Atalteche horses? Those are real shiny horses.
2: Atalteche, that's what I'm thinking they are, probably.
0: No, we do not offer Atalteche horses for pederasty. <laughs> we do not sully the name of those horses. Anyway, so it's interesting that in some versions of this myth, Zeus gives Tros a golden vine instead of the horses. What is the golden vine? Is that like for winemaking or something?
2: It didn't really say. It just said a golden vine. I was like, well, what does it do? Does it produce gold? Does it make good wine? I don't know.
0: Okay, so we don't know what the significance of that is. But either way, after this gift has been exchanged, everything is, in fact, cool. Tros is no longer mourning the abduction and loss of his son. Instead, he's content with his epic gift of Akalteke horses, which we do not sully the name of. And he just sort of moves on with his life because really what else can he do? He can't storm the halls of Olympus. He can't make the king of the gods give his son back. He's impotent. He's in a very real sense powerless. And that's basically the whole story. That's basically it.
2: We'll see you next week.
0: And that's it for this week.
2: No, we won't. Because <laughs> because we had a reason for telling you this story. Why we have dedicated an entire episode to it. And it's because this story is the basis for everything we've talked about during our Gender rebel series. Essentially, this story is what created the binary for the erastes Eromenos dynamic that was so essential to classical Athens and how the classical Athenians viewed gender. This story mythologized and justified the pederastic relationships that were rampant in ancient Greece and Rome. The erastes Eromenos relationship was modeled after this myth, So much so that young boys in ancient Rome were castrated to preserve their youth and beauty, just as Zeus preserved the youth and beauty of Ganymede by taking him to Olympus, where he would never age. And in those slave markets where child sex slaves were sold, boys with long golden hair that was reminiscent of Ganymede fetched the highest prices.
0: Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, this story is at the basement, like the bottom basement of patriarchy as we know it today. It's all the way at the root, this particular story, because if our idea of gender and the patriarchy springs from ancient Athens, I'm not saying that's the only place it comes from, but it's like a big root of that. This story is at the root of that.
2: It's a big root of Western of Western gender, I would say, yeah.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, our binary is different now. And I think a lot of that is influenced by Christianity, but that dominance and submission paradigm is still in play.
2: And Christianity also adopted this Erastus and Romano's relationship. We talked about it a lot in our eunuchs episode. There is evidence in the church of this relationship still coming through.
0: The Catholic church. Yeah. The Catholic church carried this forward to the modern day. This stuff occurred in the 21st century and is no doubt still occurring in places. This has not stopped. We have not left this in the past. And that's why it's important to talk about it. So this story perpetuated the idea that this form of abuse, this pederastic relationship, is accepted and even encouraged by the gods. That was something that the ancients took a lot of care to bake into their mythology. We've talked a lot about pederasty this season, and... We don't want to go over it too much, but guess what? I guess we're going to go over it some more because everyone wants to hear about it. You can learn a lot more about the uh, puer delicatus, which is the ancient Roman version of this paradigm in our Unix episodes, but there are a few things that we need to talk about, particularly in relation to this myth and the history. The pederastic erastes eromenos relationship was all about an older, wealthier, more socially or upwardly mobile man who propositions and then takes on a much younger boy, usually it's a young adolescent boy, as his lover. This relationship was considered the binary back then. It was all about dominance and submission. It wasn't necessarily about man and woman in terms of, like, your sexuality. It was commonplace and obviously horrible. And not considered to be transgressive at all. It was considered to be kind of hetero by the ancient Greeks. There was a particular kind of male-coded beauty, really child beauty, that was considered to be the most attractive in terms of male beauty. Like, what was a beautiful man? Like, their idea of what a beautiful man was was, in fact, like an adolescent boy.
2: No, not necessarily. Their idea of, like, male youth beauty was Ganymede but they had they had a different standard for like male beauty and you see a lot of that in your Heracles statues right like it is a different standard of a beautiful man
0: You mean like you could be an adult man and also be beautiful I guess you
2: wouldn't be beautiful you'd probably just be like handsome or rugged or I guess beautiful probably you're right is more is more for a child adolescent. And that's also why you see Apollo in certain ways looking like that. And even some of the Dionysus imagery where your iconography of Dionysus is as a young man. He doesn't have golden curls, but he does he looks very youthful.
0: So this is a particular kind of male coded beauty that was very childlike, that was considered to be the most attractive in the Erastes Aromanos paradigm. And that standard of beauty was basically Ganymede. Essentially the most valued Aramanos. Or beloved were said to look like Ganymede blonde curls, very young, no facial hair, very waifish and childlike, which is obviously gross. And this was so desired that eventually in ancient Rome, you got a market for these boys, which we talked about at length, as we said in our eunuchs episodes. This market resulted in sex slavery, forced castration, and human trafficking. It got extremely dark.
2: Yeah, we are living in the darkest timeline. We're telling you about the darkest timeline. It's all dark. However, The crux of the Erastes or Romano's relationship wasn't supposed to be quite this dark, although it's still pretty fucking awful. The original Athenian-Greek idea behind this relationship was that the older man would act as a mentor and benefactor. It was the older man's job to help his young lover move up the social ladder, introduce the boy to the right people to advance his career, his family, and his ambitions. That was the theory. The young boy's role was to allow the older dude to, well, to put it bluntly, to abuse him. This was seen in their society as a rite of passage, where the boy did, theoretically, get the right to say no, and where he was supposed to get something out of it. The Roman version was essentially just sex slavery, without even the pretext of consent for the boy, no social benefit to him. And also castration was sometimes part of it. And the root of this lover-beloved relationship comes from the story of Zeus and Ganymede. So which historical reality does the original mythology resemble? The Athenian version or the ancient Roman version?
0: I think the interesting thing here is that the Zeus and Ganymede myth was used as a foundational myth to justify both and to say that Zeus had sanctioned both. It was a way to socially sanction both of these types of pederasty. Let's take a look at the history and let's take a look at what we know about Athenian pederasty. This is the darkest timeline. Look, we're going to
2: have some fun stuff next week, we promise.
0: We're going to try and make it lighter. We always say that and then we don't, but we're going to try. We'll see. But anyway, yeah, so let's let's see what we know about the Athenian version and the Roman version, the Pura Delicatus, and see, see what we can come up with here when we compare them.
2: Yeah, and I would say that just before we compare any of them, Ganymede is powerless in, in all of the myths in the face of Zeus' sexual aggression, because he's a child and he's not able to stand up to the king of the gods. The balance of power, it's never going to be equal or even anywhere near equal. To me, it resembles more of the ancient Roman sex slavery than the Athenian version, but I think, as Jenny has said, there is a case that this myth was meant to be the foundational basement for both.
0: Yeah, and I don't think that it's um it's a case. I think it's a fact.
2: Sorry, it's a fact.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think it was used as a, as a basis for both and a justification for both. It's a way of saying that Zeus had sanctioned both kinds of relationships. But I would say that like the way that Zeus carries Ganymede off, he doesn't get a chance to say no. He's shown struggling. It's very clear that he does not consent. Obviously, with the Athenian version, There are lots of reasons why that consent is not actually consensual, starting with the fact that this is a child we're talking about in a relationship with an adult, but also there's like balances of power and familial pressure and things like that, like where I don't think that you could say any of that would be really consensual anyway, but there was a pretense of consent.
2: Girls also at this age were children. They were effectively something between the age of 13 and 16, let's say. They also couldn't really consent to the marriages that they were forced into either with similar familial pressures. And they were often married to much older men.
0: And they didn't get the pretext of consent either. So, I mean, there's definitely a whole different rabbit hole we could go down about. Was marriage kind of a form of sex slavery? Which is, you could make that argument, in the ancient world. Yeah, that's not what this episode's about.
2: Okay, so let's talk about what Ganymede gets as a result of being in this hideous relationship with Zeus.
0: Ganymede does gain something from his participation in whatever the fuck this is that has been forced on him by Zeus, and that's immortality. He gets to stay young and beautiful and live among the immortals. He'll never age, he'll never grow up, and he'll never die. He'll be frozen in beautiful adolescent perfection forever. In this way, he does get something from the relationship. I guess you could say that I don't think what he gets from the relationship is the same as what boys in pederastic relationships in ancient Athenian Greece were said to get out of it. Like he doesn't get like social advancement. I think that this also resembles more the ancient Roman version than the Athenian Greek version. On the surface, you might be able to say that it doesn't, but I think if you look a little closer, it does. Because like the poor Delicatus, he's always at the beck and call of his abuser and surrounded by people who are also watching what's happening. But are unable or unwilling to intervene. People like Zeus's wife, who aren't fans of Ganymede and maybe actively plotting to make his life harder, or maybe were being too tough on Hera. She might have felt really bad about this relationship, who knows? This whole thing is a horror show. And, and it's interesting to say that because uh Puer Delicatus in ancient Rome, that was an enslaved position. The boy had no out. Whereas in Athenian Greece, the boy was supposed to age out of this relationship. This wasn't like forever, and also. Castration in the ancient Roman poor delicatus situation was supposed to serve the role of preserving the youth and beauty of the boy forever. It was supposed to freeze him in time and not let him grow up. So I think this also resembles the poor delicatus situation a lot more in this instance as well.
2: Absolutely. And I am one of those people who I was first introduced to the Greek myths when I was very young. And I love them. And the myth of Ganymede, I was like, well, who doesn't want to live forever and get to hang out with the gods? And now as an adult, I'm like, oh, fuck, this is horrible. Like everything about this as I was doing the research, like my small child brain exploded and my adult brain was like, this is awful. Like he is stuck in this forever. He never grows up. He's surrounded by people who've seen what have happened to him all the time, who won't intervene on his behalf or who can't intervene on his behalf. And this is just an unending torture.
0: Yeah, and if you look at the lives of people like Sporus and Orinus, you know, known puer delicatus boys in Roman emperors' households, that was kind of the situation.
2: And while Ganymede is given this epic life, you know, quote-unquote, I hope that was implied with my tone. What happens to Ganymede's family? His father is given either a golden vine or the horses of the gods. The rewards for his mortal family are great. They allow his father to have status and wealth, and if his father has to lie to himself at night about what really happened to his son, well, at least he's doing it from a better palace with better horses and more wealth. The benefit to the family may be another thing that resembled what happened in classical Greece. The Erastes usually chose an Oromenos from a family that was influential, but less influential than him. This relationship could elevate the whole family.
0: And unlike more direct forms of sex work, which, let's be clear, this was a sexual relationship, and it was a a sexual exchange, but it was not necessarily directly considered sex work in that society and didn't damage the boy's status as a citizen. Whereas this type of sex with a young boy outside of an Erastes and Araminos relationship would have a negative impact on the boy's status if it was found out. These Zeus-sanctioned, pederastic relationships were super common in ancient classical Greece and in other parts of Greece. We see them with Heracles and Aeolus. Apollo has a series of relationships with men that would also follow this pattern. It's only Dionysus who really breaks the mold here. And in most of his relationships with men, he's the Araminos, although I guess sometimes that's not the case. Sometimes it's not the case. It
2: usually is the case.
0: It's difficult because I think with Dionysus,
2: Yes, this happens, but there is always an unequal balance of power because he is a god. The difference is he, uh, his gender presentation is not what the Greeks would have considered to be their binary here.
0: Yeah, and I think he explicitly takes the penetratee role in sex.
2: That's kind of what I'm, what I think I'm getting at here. However, the reality is he's still a god. He can still smite you, you know, he didn't, but he could.
0: Yeah, so he's kind of like Achilles in that way where it's a little bit hard to tell where he falls on this binary because he could, he could kind of go either or.
2: He could definitely go either or, but he, he definitely was bottom. <laughs> like...
0: So in history, we've also talked about this type of relationship with Hadrian and Antinous, Nero and Sporus, Domitian and Orinus, and so many other examples.
2: Yeah, so we can see it everywhere. And according to Plato, pederastic relationships between boys and men came from Crete. Plato has a lot to say on this topic. In Laws 636C, which dates from the fourth century BC, Plato says, One certainly should not fail to observe that when male unites with female for procreation, the pleasure experienced is held to be due to nature, but contrary to nature when male mates with male or female with female, and that those first guilty of such enormities were impelled by their slavery to pleasure. And we all accuse the Cretans of concocting the story of Ganymede because it was the belief that they derived their laws from Zeus. They added on this story about Zeus in order that they might be following his example and enjoying this pleasure as well. So essentially, Plato has a lot to say here about sex for pleasure. He says elsewhere that heterosexual sex isn't really pleasurable and feels that the ideal coupling is Erastes or Araminos. And the fact that according to this quote, the practice was widespread in Crete, and the story was made up by them in quotation marks, is really interesting.
0: Yeah, because the Cretans had their own version of a pederastic tradition, and theirs, at least according to the ancient sources, Plato included, I'm not sure how truthful this is, theirs involved kidnapping. In their version, an older man would abduct a young man or a boy, and this boy would be kept as a hostage by his older quote-unquote lover, rapist, for two months. After this two-month period, the boy would then be allowed to enter society as a man. Plato is theorizing that the Cretans made up this story about Zeus and Ganymede to explain their quote-unquote unholy lust for young boys. I don't know. I mean, I think that actually that resembles the Ganymede and Zeus story the most, this kidnapping paradigm. But this myth, the one about the Cretans making up the Zeus and Ganymede story, The closest version of the myth to what they actually did is even sadder than you'd think. So there's this alternate story of Ganymede's abduction. This story is actually from the Byzantine Suda, which dates to the 10th century AD, which is a lot later. It's
2: like over a thousand years later.
0: It may be based on Plato's references to kidnapping that occurred in classical Greece around the 400s or 300s BC. Both Plato's reference in this one might be based on an older myth that's now lost. It's really hard to say. I suspect that there's something missing in the historical record here. I totally think
2: there is. And I wanted to include this mention because I just thought like there is probably some deeper root myth that we are missing. And a lot of the times we do see this, particularly in regards to Crete, like we see this a lot with myths about Dionysus and Ariadne and where Dionysus came from. And I think the same is true with Minos and and Zeus and stuff like that, because Crete had an older, had an older culture that we don't actually know a lot about.
0: And that the classical Greeks didn't necessarily know a lot about either.
2: Yeah, exactly. It was old to them.
0: Right, exactly. Because there was this cultural break with the Bronze Age collapse or decline or whatever you want to call it. There was a societal collapse where there wasn't a lot of communication between the old world and the new and the ancient classical Greeks and the Romans after them absolutely made up myths to explain things that they were seeing in the ruins of older civilizations that had come before and it's really fascinating and that's something I would love to do a deep dive on I'm sure somebody's written the book on this I just haven't found it
2: in the artwork that they were seeing in the remnants and history that remained from that time that they didn't have a story for
0: but also bearing in mind that people did live on Crete in the 300s and 400s BC when Plato was alive too like it's not just about the minoans like it could be something that was happening closer to plato's time like all of this is very murky and hard to say
2: yeah and also remember we only have the sources that we have that have survived and all of this is thousands you know we're in the well into the bcs like we're lucky we have anything
0: Yeah, so in this story, let's just get to the story. And
2: let's just stop for a minute, just trigger warning, we're going to talk about suicide here.
0: In this story, the initial kidnapper isn't Zeus at all, it's King Minos of Crete. And this is from the Byzantine Suda from late antiquity, 10th century AD. Quote, King Minos of Crete, hearing of the great fame in Phrygia of Tros, the king of Troy, and of his sons, he went to the city of Dardanos, where Tros lived. Tros had three sons, Elos... Asarachos, and Ganymede, the last of whom had a great name for beauty. So Minos stayed as a guest with Tros, both giving and receiving presents, and he ordered Tros to summon his sons so that he might see them and give them presents too. But Tros said that they had gone on a hunt, so Minos too wanted to hunt with them. At first, Tros sent one of his attendants into the place where the boys were hunting, around the Grenicus River. But Minos, having sent out his ships a little beforehand to the river, came later to the sons and saw Ganymede and fell in love with him. And having given out orders to the Cretans and snatched the boy, he him in the ship is a little fragmentary. He he took him in the ship and sailed away. Minos took the boy and went to Crete. The boy, to ease his pain, killed himself with a sword, and Minos buried him in the temple. Hence, of course, it is said that Ganymede serves with Zeus. So the fact that the idea that Ganymede serves with Zeus here is basically a metaphor for saying that he died?
2: Essentially, yeah. And I wanted to include this version of the myth because it really showed the story from another light. This reality where Ganymede is so desperate to escape the abuse of Minos that he takes his own life would have unfortunately been common for so many boys in ancient Greece and Rome. And the fantasy that Ganymede then gets to live happily with Zeus and the Olympians is supposed to take some of the sting from the myth, but for me, all it does is highlight the harsh reality for some boys in the ancient world. But I didn't want to end this on the most depressing note, so I have one more story about Ganymede, and I'm hopeful that Ganymede eventually got to have a nice existence on Olympus. That Zeus left him alone and Ganymede found some friends. According to Xenophon, Zeus loved... <laughs> this is Xenophon, and he puts like this whole argument in the mouth of Socrates and one of the things that Xenophon wrote. But essentially, Xenophon says that Zeus loved Ganymede for his mind and his soul. And that the relationship wasn't sexual.
0: Xenophon, in um, I think in Plato's Symposium, was the guy who thought that Achilles and Patroclus were just really good friends.
2: Yeah, Xenophon really has a an issue here with um, understanding how 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 stuff works.
0: The whole ancient world seems to be aware of that, and it seems to be making fun of him for it.
2: <laughs> Xenophon is very clear that Zeus was not having sex with Ganymede. Zeus just really had a thing for Ganymede's mind. He was a very smart boy and, and, his, and his spirit. It was not about sex. Xenophon gives us this evidence by saying that Ganymede's name, the root of it, breaks down to ganu, meaning taking pleasure, and Mide, or mind. Further evidence for this theory, according to Xenophon, is that Zeus never made any of his other lovers immortal. Which, I mean, that is true, but also Xenophon get your shit together. Zeus abducted Ganymede. And Ganymede might have gone off without complaining, according to Xenophon. This is all in brackets. But honestly, who the fuck was Ganymede going to complain to? Who was going to overrule Zeus?
0: It's not like Ganymede could complain to anybody.
2: Exactly. I saw that as like another argument somewhere. It's like, well,
0: Ganymede just went and he didn't complain.
2: I'm like, but who could he complain
0: to? (laughs) Like,
2: this is horrible.
0: I mean, that's a little bit like victim shaming. It's totally
2: victim shaming.
0: It's like victims of rape aren't objecting enough so they're not really being raped or, you know, like things like that. That's what it sounds like.
2: It's absolutely that. It's absolutely victim shaming. And I included it because I was absolutely furious when I read that argument. Number one, Ganymede has no one he can complain to. This is the king of the gods. Like there is literally no one higher than Zeus and he has no choice in the matter. So whether or not this relationship is sometimes depicted in artwork or in mythology as Ganymede being without complaint. Who's he going to complain to? It's so dark, it's so wrong, and it's just blaming the victim, and it's just awful, and it's one of the many reasons why Zeus is the worst.
0: Yeah, so um, putting Xenophon's absolute bullshit aside for a second, here's another story that isn't the worst timeline ever. It just takes it a notch lighter. This is a late source. It's from the 5th century A.D., But it gives us a look at what Ganymede's life might have been like in the not as dark timeline. Like, I guess if we're going with this Xenophon idea that they weren't having sex or maybe if Zeus lost interest after a while and Ganymede eventually got to be left alone. I don't know. Like, it's not as bad as it could be. I mean, it's still bad, but.
2: It's still awful. But like. At least Ganymede has a life outside of Zeus, and I guess that's kind of what I was hoping to leave us on.
0: So Ganymede wasn't the only never-aging child on Mount Olympus. There were others, and there are some stories about them all being playmates. Can you tell us a little bit about these other non-aging children here? Because I don't know anything about this, really.
2: So for a long time, the non-aging children were Eros, and he had a few, like, brothers and sisters who were non-aging as well. They were depicted with Aphrodite as being sort of like, essentially, we call them little cupids. They're not, they have a different name that I now can't think of because it is late and my brain is broken. There's people like Hymenus, who's the god of marriage. Hebe is sometimes depicted as being, like, very young because she's the goddess of youth, I believe. Although eventually she does marry Heracles, so she's still very young, but she's old enough to be married. But there is sort of like a chorus of sort of like younger gods who are either unaging or they age much slower than than mortals do because they stay young for a long time or their appearance tends to be young. We know eventually Eros winds up with Psyche, so we know eventually he he gets older. But yeah, so they they kind of had their own sort of like fun and games and stuff that they got to do. And I kind of wanted to just include this idea that maybe there was some joy in Ganymede's life.
0: Maybe. I love the fact that Hymenaeus is the god of marriage, and the word hymen is in there. Absolutely. That's where it comes from. But these are like this sort of flock of of cherubic babies that sort of flocks around Aphrodite, and they kind of all represent various facets of love.
2: Yeah, and there's, there's different ones. Like, there's definitely, like, um... One's unrequited love. I think some are like different types of desire. And a lot of times they are depicted as being children or babies. They all have different aspects. This is just an aspect of them.
0: Yeah. So I'll give you this quote, which is, um, it's Ganymede, not in the darkest timeline. Quote, the Greek goddess of beauty, uh, one of the charities, found Eros on the golden top of Olympus, shooting the nectar drops from a cup. Uh, What he was actually doing was playing katabos, If you have listened to our other episodes, you know what Kattabos is. So they're playing Kattabos. Beside him stood Hymenaeus, his fair-haired playfellow in the dainty game. Hymenaeus, again, was the childlike god of marriage. He had put up as a prize for the victor something clever made by his haughty mother, Arania. Winged arrows had taken and put up a round golden necklace as a prize for victory. A large silver basin stood for their game, and the shooting mark before them was a statue of Hebe shown in the middle pouring the wine. The umpire in the game was Ganymede, cupbearer of Zeus, holding the garland. Lots were cast for the shots of unmixed wine, with varied movements of the fingers. These they held out. These they pressed upon the root of the hand, closely joined together. A charming match it was between them. Eros won the contest, and Ganymede, laughing, handed the dainty garland to Eros. Quickly he picked up the beautiful necklace and lifted the globe, and kept the two prizes of their clever drop game there's
2: another story of Eros and Ganymede playing knucklebones. It's early on in Ganymede's time on Olympus and Eros is a terrible cheater and he wins. And Aphrodite goes over to her son because she's furious and she tells him that it's not fair to cheat a beginner. And I found that really endearing (laughs) and I'm not sure why. So cute, right? She's just telling him off. She's like, man, that kid has it hard enough. Could you not, like, cheat?
0: <laughs> and it's also, like, really normal. You know, like, anybody's parents have probably yelled at them at some point for doing this to their younger sibling, right?
2: Yeah, and it, it looks like, as time went on, maybe Eros and Ganymede had some kind of friendship. Maybe over the course of their long lifetimes, they found themselves able to forge a companionship, a friendship, and a new kind of found family amongst the dysfunctional Olympians. At least,
0: that's my hope. So that's it for this week. Join us next week when we talk about whatever we're talking about next.
2: <laughs> um, you know the drill. You can find us on Twitter at Ancient Hist Fan and on Facebook and Instagram at Ancient History Fangirl.
0: And you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash Fangirl. And we've got some new patrons to thank.
2: Yes, we do. Thank you very much to Mark LeBlanc.
0: Shannon Carone.
2: And Kinsey Bunch.
0: And we've got a new five-star review to share. Why don't you do it this time, Jen? All right.
2: Love it. I found this through its sister podcast, Let's Talk About Myths Baby. I mean, we're not technically Liv's sister podcast, but we kind of love the idea that we might be her sister podcast. We're keeping that. Uh, and, the, and the review continues. And I've been binging ever since. I'm currently in the middle of season three, and I can't wait for the recent Gender rebel stuff. I love the gender-inclusive language and the bias transparency. Big thumbs up from a gender-fluid lesbian. This is from Athena Help Penelope via Apple Podcasts. Thank you so much.
0: Thank you so much. We appreciate the review. Thank you. We do. And remember, please
2: rate and review us. And if you leave a review, we will try and get it read on the podcast. We appreciate these reviews. They've really meant so much to us.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much. And we will see you next week.
1: Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go.